This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This is amazing. I find this amazing simply because, you know, we're always talking about young people not getting engaged in politics. And here we have a 19-year-old guy who uh, has won the nomination for Niagara West uh, Glanbrook. Uh, 19-year-old Sam Oosterhoff wins. Uh, Your thoughts on a 19-year-old MPP Facebook. Uh, Thomas says he's too young. Uh, You should have to be 21 to run in an election. Wow, that's interesting. Um, that's like the old days when the liquor license or the liquor laws used to say it had to be 21. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you can fight for your country, uh, should you not be able to run for it? Uh, interesting thought. Feel free to offer your opinion. Uh, let's bring in uh, Noor Al-Qadri. Uh, Noor Al-Qadri, he is a professor at the Telfor School of Management, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Ha- Hello, Noor. How are you today? I'm doing very well, Scott. How have you been? Good. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We greatly appreciate this. So your thoughts on this win? We'll start, we'll start at our area and then work over towards you guys in Ottawa. What are your thoughts about what happened uh, down this way? Well, uh, the interesting thing is having a 19-year-old uh, uh, set, set a new record uh, by winning uh, this by-election in, uh, in Nevada. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, it's a surprise, and I see that many people are talking about it. Uh, it's not a surprise uh, to me because most political parties uh, they would uh, allow people to join them or young young people to join them at the age of 14. So, if you have uh, uh, people being engaged at that uh, age, so by the time they're uh, 18 or 19, they become political junkies, and uh, they would have gone through one or two campaigns and. Uh, uh, they they would have something to offer and contribute. Uh, this is not new to us at the federal level. We had uh, um, many MPs elected who were 19 and 20 years old, especially from Quebec in the orange wave with right. uh, Jack Layton. Um, so the common thing is, uh, is, is that youth should be more engaged these uh, these times with social media. Uh, we've been we've seen much more participation in, uh, in the youth, especially in the last federal elections. So, and, uh, and I see no reason why we wouldn't have more participation in uh, uh, in provincial elections and municipal elections uh, at uh, as early as this stage. I think going forward, uh, this is go- we're going to see too many uh, members of the youth being engaged in politics. Would he have inspired others in that demographic to cast a ballot? Uh, that that's an absolute uh, uh, yes, especially if um, uh, uh, he has been uh, involved at uh, at university, and uh, um, you would see people in universities, uh, members of clubs and organizations, and uh, they would have a different look at, at politics, and uh, the, it becomes a fun game for them, and uh, they could rally uh, with it easily. Um, somebody like him uh, would have utilized social media also a lot, which which is his natural platform, and uh, and that would have uh, helped a lot in the, in his uh, in his election. That's a good point. I mean, being prolific with social media would certainly be an asset from now on, would it not? Uh, absolutely. We've seen this with the election of Barack Obama that he mm-hmm. has been utilized, and then we've seen that with. Uh, uh, with Nahid Manchi in, in Calgary be, uh, running for mayor and coming from 1% uh, polling uh, to uh, to 40% on election night in less than three months. And uh, people saw, well, this is a venue that uh, we cannot ignore any uh, anymore. It's as important as funding. It's as important as the machine. It's it's one of the, it's the tools of, of winning these days. And, uh, uh, and it's, and people 
are good at it, especially the young generation, um, are, are going to be the beneficiaries of it. Uh, he's obviously a poli sci student at Brock University. He's taking some time off at this point. If you were one of his profs, what would you think of him? Well, I I always uh, I always tell my students you should politics even at uh, at the local levels of the university. Yeah. In my classes, I would allow students who are running for student federations to come and introduce themselves five minutes before, and I I tell my students. Those are people who are working on your behalf. They're asking and, and calling for your rights and, uh, and 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 defending you. And you should be engaged. And and those people make it uh, make it onto the public scene, whether they run for municipal councillors or or uh, or MPPs or uh, or MPs. Uh, you will you will see um, these types of things are um, um, more prevalent these days. I I would be proud of of, uh, of a student. Who would make it this uh, this way? And uh, and I've had many students who have been elected before. So, uh, are you surprised then that people are making such a fuss over the fact that he is a 19 year old uh, MPP? Uh, obviously, you see it at the campus level all the time. Uh, it seems that uh, we're we're looking for young people to get engaged in politics, and yet when they do, we question their experience. How do we balance that? Uh, I believe. Uh, a caucus at the end uh, needs a balance of everything. You need to, to reach out uh, to the young generation, and um, having young people elected is, is a good representation. Uh, I've seen that many political parties in their local riding associations, they have introduced uh, at conventions uh, having a minimum number of women being elected to the uh, to the riding associations and a minimum number of youth. So I've seen, for instance, with the Liberal Party and with the NDP, they would like to, have, they would want to have the two members of the riding associations who are youth being uh, elected. I mean, they have quotas for those, uh, and and I think uh, having uh, we don't want to have quotas in in elections, but when you have quotas and you're asking people to be engaged, it's just a formal progression uh, or a normal progression in, into that by having some of those youth taking it a step higher and being inspired and, and running. Some of them, they say, okay, well, we'll run to uh, to put our name there. And uh, the, uh, the second thing they see is that uh, we are being elected because of a wave or because of uh, um, the party doing well in the national polls. Um, but uh, um, many people think of it as a stepping stone, and they end up being elected. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people saw that with Brexit and also with uh, the Trump election. Uh, obviously, uh, PCs hang on to Niagara West Glanbrook, and in Ottawa, Vanier, the Liberals hang on to that seat as well. Any surprises there? Uh, not at all. I, uh, I was foreseeing that and expecting it um, to Two major contributors uh, to this. Number one is the PCs are doing uh, very well national uh, in the province, uh, and uh, uh, that seat in Yagara was a safe seat for them. Uh, so whoever would have run as a conservative is going to be uh, winning, uh, winning there, especially if they focus on uh, the localization aspects in by-elections, uh, localizing. Uh, the issue is highly very important because the participation rate is usually uh, small mm-hmm. or in terms of percentage and only those people who are engaged who, who have issues that touch them and uh, 
they want to focus on that. So, for instance, in, in the Niagara region, when you have um, the 19-year-old running and talking about uh, uh, electricity uh, uh, and uh, where the prices are high, especially in distri- the distribution, a big part of the uh, riding is a rural part where the electricity is a major factor uh, mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in the by-election, and he focused on, the, on these types of things. Um, that that would have, uh, add to his uh, to his support. On the other hand, in Vanya, for instance, we've seen the conservative candidate uh, Andrea Marion focusing on electricity again. But that's that's less of an issue in Vanya, uh, in Vanya, which is a major uh, uh, urban area uh, where the distribution of electricity doesn't um, doesn't cost much. Uh, as in the rural areas, and um, those wouldn't uh, resonate well with uh, with the public. You need to be focused on issues that relate uh, relate to them. So that's the number. So one elect- electricity electricity prices aren't an issue in Ottawa, Vanier. Uh, not as in rural rural ridings. Okay, so, mm. so you, you would. But I'm just the reason I question that, Nor, is that uh, you know we're in the GTHA and it's an urban area and people are screaming about electricity prices. Uh, absolutely, electricity prices are high, but in the rural areas, they are going to be much yeah, higher because right. of the distribution costs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, if, if the people are going to uh, have, if 20% of the people are going to have issues in the urban areas, it's going to be 50% in the rural areas. Right. So, uh, so it's not only about electricity, it's about the localization of the issues in uh, in general. And uh, so I'm just bringing that electricity as one example. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so uh, there was an interesting column uh, I saw in the, in the in the papers today, and it said uh, clearly people are are still uh, uh, content with Kathleen Wynne. They're not uh, upset with her. This was a, would have been a, cru- a crucial uh, sign, or, or I guess message sent to her if that Ottawa riding had gone to something else. Would that have been pretty much impossible in your eyes? Like, are are, are, are people in Ottawa Vanier content with with the Wynne government? Um, let, let, let me give you my, my perspective on the Ottawa-Vanier uh, writing. The Ottawa-Vanier writing uh, uh, has a um, major part of, of it is being a low-income uh, population. And usually it's the, comp- the competition happens on uh, on the left, center and center-left in, in that area. Right. The fact that the PCs are doing very well in the provincial polls yeah. um, they they need to come up with policies that are central or center left in 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 areas that are uh, uh, mainly leaning to the left side. So the liberals in there they went more to the left by choosing a candidate who has uh, who's very well proven. Uh, somebody, Natalie um, Zerzia, she, um, she's been in dean of law school twice. She. Um, she was the president of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She has fought for child care. She's fought for um, uh, equality of women. And so it's ma- mainly the competition was on the left. And the, uh, the liberals took a lot from the NDP in, in that area and prevented a three-way race uh, in Vanier. Uh, in, in uh, the, the second thing is... Uh, um, and, uh, Andre Marine, although he uh, is a very well-rounded candidate, he had to face the liberal machine, 
the liberals mm. did not focus on Niagara. They knew that they're going to lose that one. So they brought all their heavyweights into into Vanier. So you've seen uh, the Attorney General and uh, Government House Leader Yasser Nagvi campaigning heavily in Vanier. We've seen the outgoing uh, Minister, um, Madame uh, Madeleine Mayer, campaigning heavily, heavily in the riding. Uh, the minister on the other side, uh, in uh, the MPP of uh, of Orleans, Ms. Um, Lalonde, mm-hmm. uh, again uh, campaigning in, in that riding. Even we've seen federal uh, ministers like uh, uh, Catherine McKenna, the Minister of um, uh, Environment and Climate Change, campaigning heavily in, in that riding. Kathleen Wynne walked in with uh, Natalie Drozier to the to the victory party. She was with her. So we've seen that the, uh, then that the whole liberal machine has been in that riding. So uh, they could not afford such a loss in, in this riding, uh, especially after the loss of the by-elections in the GTA, and, uh, and they had no hopes in Niagara. This would have been a, uh, a good, uh, a, a big blowout for, for them, and it's going to be a challenge uh, for the Kathleen Wynne leadership had they lost this riding. Hmm. Do you think Kathleen Wynne will take the part? We've only got a, a, f- a few seconds left. Do you think the party will will uh, keep Kathleen Wynne at the helm into the next election, or do you think we'll see a switch at the top? Um, I believe she's uh, she's going to stay. Um, she says that she has uh, had a plan and she's implementing that plan. Uh, there are going to be setbacks in by-elections. Uh, governments who are in in office, they uh, they get a lot of hits. Um, some uh, election wins like this one uh, is going to give her a boost uh, that she can live with uh, for uh, for some time, and I think she's going to be good for the next election. Nor El Qadri has been with us, professor at the Telfer School of Management, University of Ottawa. Nor, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Always. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, does censorship inflame the alt-right or hinder their message? Is that uh, is there an alt-right movement in Canada? I think, I don't know. What is alt-right? And we're going to ask Henry Jasek what it was called before it was called the alt-right. Uh, anyway, this all stemming from uh, social media uh, being challenged and, and Facebook uh, because how they it's perceived that they slanted information one way or another or the groups that are within them did. And, and it basically comes down to news sites and organizations, uh, groups of people uh, that are spreading news that isn't that isn't true. Uh, so uh, now, of course, some of these uh, social media sites have started to crack down on this, the alt-right looking at, at this as censorship. To talk more about it, Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Henry. How are you today? Just great, Scott. You know, we've talked about extremes before on this show, and I, I think I've said to you that, you know, it seems we live in a world of extremes now. We have either the far left or the far right, and, and, and the middle has seemed to lost its traction somewhere. Uh, what was alt-right before we've known it as alt-right? Well, I think it's, it's, it's hard to say there was just one thing, because I think if you're looking at the U.S., there are streams that have come together, different streams of different type of people or thought. Uh, I mean, the first thing I, you know, in one doesn't capture. So I would begin with say, well, we think of this as sort of a hillbilly mentality. 
Yeah, like the redneck. Yeah, well, but the, see, the rednecks were farmers. They didn't really live in the mountains. You oh, see? Okay. okay. So there's. Wow, really, you are being specific. Yeah, no, no, no. It, it is a different groups coming together. I mean, because actually, if you went back over a hundred years, the hillbillies had very had different views than the rednecks mm, <laughs> because mm. the rednecks were basically uh, Democrat. Uh, Demo- after uh, they supported the Civil War. They, you know, they the Confederate flag was their banner. Uh, they were, yeah, and the the hillbillies actually were were supporters of the North at that time. So in fact, uh, 150 years ago, they're actually different people, but they have now merged together. Uh, the both the, the the rednecks, the farmers in the lowlands, the tobacco growers, and all all those people, and then with the hillbillies up in the mountain. And they actually come from different parts of the United Kingdom. When if you went back on the immigration side, but we won't go that far. But so those two groups have come together, and uh, other 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 people who have joined them essentially are what I would call oftentimes displaced workers. These are people who themselves, their fathers, their grandfathers used to have good um, uh, union jobs in manufacturings. They were semi-skilled, but they got good pay and they could have a nice, you know, good life. But those those factories have two things. One, they moved away, so those jobs disappeared. And then, or they become, if there are factories put in, they're now automated and they have a lot of robots and very few workers. So the, the jobs aren't there, so they're technologically displaced and they're angry. So all these groups are very angry. They, they want, they are angry at the present. They are angry at the fact that uh, the cities are so big and strong and prosperous. They're angry at new immigrants coming in. Who, who are not white, I mean, so there is a, certainly a racist thing, and it's just more than blacks, but that's very important in the U.S., but it's also Asian immigrants, anybody who isn't white, uh, they distrust, and particularly if they're educated, you know, non-whites, then they get even more angry, because they know those people are probably going to do okay economically, and they're not doing okay. So these have sort of merged together, and, and a com- well, two common themes is one is, Things used to be a lot better in the past. If we can only go back to the past, life will be a whole lot better. The present is horrible, and we want to go back to the past. And, of course, you can see that in Donald Trump's uh, message. Make America great again. Right. Hit the again. Again, that it used to be great if you, you know, he's just telling all these people, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, things were great. They're not great anymore. I want to go back to that period when, in fact, we didn't have all these immigrants, when we had good jobs for, you know, relatively low-educated workers, where life was, you know, pretty much better for the farmers in the south and even the people up in the hill, you know, people up in the hillbillies. Uh, areas were even better where they made their made money out of moonshine. Hmm. Now, uh, you know, even uh, campaigning in Michigan, he said he was going to come back to open the very first factory. I mean, there's further proof of that. Uh, how can he do that? Well, that's very, very difficult. I noticed that in Michigan, two automobile plants closed down the day after the election. Hmm. They announced they were closing down. It was GM announced two of their plants were going to close down. It's interesting. They waited until the day after. I mean, if they did it during the election, it probably would have meant that the Democrats would have done even worse in Michigan, which they have now seen. Good point, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, no, that's very hard. And even if jobs come back in manufacturing jobs, 
you look at them now, these new factories have a lot of robots, mm-hmm. and the people who are in charge of the robots usually have a, a, a graduate degree in engineering. Right, so it's so, not going to be the type, you know. It's not going to be their fathers who basically, you know, basically had a high school education. They were semi-skilled. They were good line workers on, yeah. on an assembly line. But we don't. We're not going to have that anymore. The, that assembly line work is being done by robots now. Uh, has this so has this become a rural versus urban issue? Oh, absolutely. Because the, I mean, the rural areas suffer a lot more. Like if you're dependent on one factory, yeah, and one business and town, it moves away, yeah. Your town is dead. And I feel you could see, I mean, the stories they do on a lot of those communities, and actually I know some because i got relatives in the States, where the factory moves away. Now, what are you going to do? You've, you've got a nice house because you were able to afford it when the factory was there and you were working in it. But you now don't have any income coming in. You probably have law, don't have any benefits because the factory that moved away is not, is not giving you retirement benefits or of, of any kind. So you have to decide. You have very little income. So you can't even sell your house because who's going to want to buy a house in a town where there's no jobs, hmm. right? So you're stuck with a yep. you're, you're stuck with a nice house that you can't sell. You have no health benefits. You 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 can't get a job. And if you do get a job, you're flipping hamburgers, uh, um, you know, at some some uh, hamburger place. And it's not like not like working in a in a yeah. factory where you were probably making three times as much per hour. So some benefits. Uh, lots of chatter in regard to social media sites right. and sites that are, are obviously catered to certain uh, viewers and such. Um, and Facebook, uh, social media like this, getting pressure put on these on them to close sites down uh, that are untruthful uh, or th- that are, are publishing things that are posting things that, that just aren't factual. Is this about censorship or is this about fact-checking? Well, it, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of both, actually. I think it is a bit of both. And, and, and I, well, I mean, I mean, the tradition, of course, if you're in the U.S. and most of our countries, I mean, you can, you can say things that aren't true that, uh, as long as you don't, you know, you don't slander somebody or you don't, Poses threat to security. I mean, if you go on Facebook and say, "Here's how you bu- you know build a bomb to blow up your local post office or something," yeah, yeah you want to shut them down right away. But what if somebody you know says something about uh, you know, which of course you, a political candidate or a politician? Well, you know, you, people can say, "Well, that's free speech. A person can believe what he wants about uh, a politician or uh, the government or what have you." Yeah, you shouldn't close it down. So. And it's and it certainly has been difficult enough to close down, uh, uh, you know, those those terrorist sites that are floating around on the social media. We know a lot of homegrown terrorists have been picking up stuff from those sites, and the government tries to close those down as they ought to. But it's you know it's, it's they have trouble keeping up with them, and even you know very you know severe pornographic sites. I know Facebook tries to do that, but they're always playing a catch-up game. On that, on that sort of thing. So it's not easy. I mean, it's, it, it's very hard to, to to monitor all this stuff uh, unless you, you know, you know, I don't know, do something very dramatic or drastic. Which you know, in a in a, in a democracy and market economy, people would just not tolerate. You know, uh, a go, you know things that maybe the Chinese government would do or. Uh, some other, you know, a Saudi Arabian government might do. We, we just wouldn't put up with that. So does this inflame the alt-right by, you know, even talking, even having this discussion? Oh, yeah. Well, they, they, they are easily inflamed, and they're, they get angry very easily. I mean, they're angry people, so it doesn't take much to tap 
into their anger. And so if you talk about trying to close these things down, they will get, you know, they, they will get very angry. And I've seen some of the stuff, their responses, you know, their pictures of, you know, it's all these whining cryberry de- crybaby Democrats because they lost the election, and uh, you know they want they they want to shut off our free speech, and you know it it's uh, yeah. So it's uh, it it does inflame them. I think uh, the more you try to do it, more people try to do it, the more they'll just inflame. You know, they'll 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 you know like Trump, they'll just double down on it. Right? I I get lots of email from people, Henry, that say, uh, you, you know, I'm not a racist but I would have voted for Trump or I voted for Trump. Um, What about those that say, I agree with Trump um, or his policies, whatever they may be, (laughs) Um, but I'm not a redneck and I'm not a hillbilly. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they could say that. I mean, and they often do. And people might say, oh, I should be allowed to have a a Confederate flag at my place of business or at my house or something. But, but I mean, there's certain meanings to those symbols. I mean, the Confederate Confederate flag was the flag of the southern states that wanted to keep uh, what they called their peculiar institution, which was slavery. Yeah. And I mean, uh, and, 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 and so it has, it has a meaning. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's a meaning that gets, you know, certainly would be highly offensive to other people because it, it, has, it has racist meanings to it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, to pretend that it doesn't, this is just not, uh, you, know, you know, something that you play around with or it does, you know, mean something very... I, I, don't think, I don't think a lot of these people, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, Henry, yeah. I don't think a lot of these people... Uh, agree with the racist comments that are making right. uh, that, or that are being made, um, but I think that they they, they still want to send a message of some sort. They do, and they and they don't. And, and they're somehow justifying that that is stronger than all of this other. So despite all of that, we're yeah. going to do this. Yeah, and and, and there are people who do, think they have no obligation not to offend people. Uh, along any kind of lines, whether it's Good racism, point, yeah. racism or gender. and I mean, you just listen to the U.S. I mean, there is language that are used by these people. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to quote them on this radio station. I mean, but it's out there in the public on TV and stuff and mm-hmm. radio. And the things that they say, I mean, it is so extraordinarily coarse. And I'm thinking things they say about women, which are really, I mean... Are incredibly shocking. I mean, it's not only Trump alone, but the the other people, the things that they say about women, I, it just it's just mind blowing about that they would say these things in public. Is there an alt left? Uh, well, you know the there is certainly, uh, and I think what the, a lot of the alt right was very unhappy about is certainly when Obama was in, he was a person who was a big promoter of what we what we might call black culture in the U.S. and I think that really infuriated a lot of the people because they didn't see they didn't see him as sort of promoting things that sort of white culture you know uh, white working class small town culture thought was important and I think that that infuriated them and that's why I think you know they would say things about Obama with a great you know very very angry and and a lot of people say well it does have a racist tone to it but it also has a cultural tone to it too that they're they're culture was sort of treated, you know, what they thought was important in daily life was treated as totally unimportant by the president. And because uh, I think Obama had a view that he he had a special responsibility to yeah. sort of promote, uh, you know, black culture and things that are associated with, with, uh, with black Americans. And as I said, that would, you know, 
you can you can argue that was the right thing for him to do or what have you, but it certainly infuriated a lot of whites that thought that they were you know they were being ignored and left out, and they would say, well, you know, we a majority of the people in the country are white, you know, you know, it's okay, you know, we're we're it's not only, you know, that he he just went overboard on it, and I think that was their view, and that's why they got very angry. So how does Trump bring together a united and unite this country? Yeah, I, that is a big question. I mean, uh, you have to worry about things, some of the things. I mean, an important post is the attorney general, for example. I mean, the attorney general has to make sure, has to really keep a clamp down on uh, racial violence in the United States, of which you know, we know exists. And if you, have a, if, you know, if you have an attorney general who essentially looks like he's very much, very much in sync with the uh, the, the alt right there boy that's that is going to be a big problem in the united states what about I mean, there was room to trust there's enough distrust by the black community the police whether warranted or not but it's tremendous amount of trust there i mean one of the biggest things the government has to do is try to bring these two communities together the police community and the black community and i don't see trump i only see trump making that that matter all worse uh <sighs> Should he say something now? Should he, or, or is it out of line for him to say something at this point while Barack Obama is still president? No, I think he should try to come as, I mean, he's tried to do it, but he he needs to really, you know, very much more how to try to calm those people down and tell them that's unacceptable. But I think, you know, but every time he gets angry, he, he sort of encourages his own followers to get even angrier, yeah. right? You've got to be a model. I mean, a president... Or any leader has got to say, okay, I have to think of the consequences. If, if I say something, the consequences on the, my own followers, you know. And we have so many examples in history of where, you know, a leader says something and then the followers take it and they become even, do something more extreme that sets a trigger off on, their, on what they think and they'll go off and do something even worse. And that's, that's the problem. And I don't think... I just don't think he can contain himself, and that—that's what I really worry about. And and then things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. He's going to say, "I didn't do this," but he's encouraged it. And yeah. and the problem is, then you're going to get a response from other people. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a very very rocky time over the next four years in the United States. Uh, rumors that he's meet, uh, meeting with Mitt Romney, uh, possible Secretary of State. Your thoughts on that? Is he is well, he is he, he going to trying to mend some fences here? Well, if he appoints Mitt Romney to something, I think that will be good. That's a positive. I, yeah, I think that would be positive. The question is, would Mitt Romney take it? Maybe he would. But, uh, you, know, could, you know, could they make up? I don't know. Maybe they're trying to. Maybe they can. But as I said, but that's not the type of post that's likely to affect the alt-right. Because, you know, you know commerce or, or anything like that is not doesn't deal with sort of the you know, yeah. the basic trigger issues yeah. that the alt-right really cares about. It's, it's like the attorney general's job. That's a much more important job for those people than, uh, than something like commerce because that's, you know, that doesn't have, not going to have a big impact on their daily lives. Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people are paying close attention to who he is meeting with in the next several weeks and who he appoints to where. Uh, so far, uh, people have been very skeptical of who he appoints. Could someone like Amit bring credibility to this? Oh, yeah. I certainly think it would be good if he could do that. I would like also people suggested he ought to appoint a, a few, you know, 
put maybe sort of moderate Democrats to his cabinet as well. I don't know if he's going to do that. I think he's not. I, I think the problem with him is he wants people he's 100% sure are loyal to him. And I think that's going to make him difficult to bring in people who are, you know, moderate people. I, I wish he would do that, but I don't, I really don't think he's going to do it, but uh, I certainly hope he would. His life is uh, about to change drastically, not only in the responsibilities that he have, but he has, but even the freedoms that he has. Oh, he, yeah. This is a very wealthy man who can pretty much come and go as he pleases. He's got yeah. his own plane. He's got his own everything. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't really need anybody, including people. That he doesn't need anybody to win an election. Yeah. Um, and, and he's talking about, you know, trying to spend more time at, at the Trump Towers as opposed to the White House. Yeah. Uh, do you think this is a guy who'll have a difficult time conforming to public life. Well, I think he's going to be a lot more secretive. Like, I don't think the press is going to have much chance to talk to him. Yeah. I mean, I think we've already seen that. I mean, he'll have a press secretary, but I don't think they're going to have a chance to, to, to question him. I don't see expect many presidential press conferences. Uh, he may, yeah, he may be, he may just be a person that a lot of people are not going to, they won't see him directly. They may see him through social media or TV, but they're not going to probably see him in the flesh very much. That does, I, I don't, I, that's what I expect. I don't expect people are going to see much of him face to face, but they will see a lot of him, as I said, through the press and through digital and social media. Uh, there's been lots of chatter how once he is in power that things will start to change drastically. Is that an over? Is that an exaggeration, do you think? How much can he do, and how will his supporters look at him one year from now after he's elected, do you think? Well, the, you know, the one... Yeah, I mean, a lot of it's hard to predict, but I think he, there's a lot of dramatic changes that can happen. I mean, he can he can kick a lot of people out of the country. I mean, he could, if he wanted to, by presidential order, he could get rid of all the, uh, you know, people the who came to the country illegally. I mean, of which we know there's millions. I mean, he can go order the people, police, the FBI and others. Theoretically, he can, Henry, but at the end of the day, the upheaval that that oh, yes. would cause, yeah, is he going right. to, I mean, is he going to do that? Well, I, mean, we, I mean, he all says... What he, if he we tries all, to do it? Yeah, now, my worry yeah. is, what if he tries... I agree with you. It's going to be very difficult to do. First of all, these people do a lot of important jobs in, in the workplace yeah. that Americans won't do. So the business community would be very upset with them. And they probably do stuff even in his own businesses. So, but is he, you know, I'm just worried about what he's going to try and, uh, you know, and how far he's going to go. And a lot of it may be symbolic, but, you know, and, and it's also how he treats foreign leaders. Is he going to be able to, is he going to actually be a diplomat? I mean, you... I don't know how diplomatic he'll be with people and how will they react. It seems like this whole situation to this point has been a con job. Yeah. Uh, why do we think it will be any different during his presidency? And by that I mean, you know, at what point do people go, where's all that stuff you talked about? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I have told people, I think right after the election, I said, one thing I expect, he's going to amaze his enemies and disappoint his supporters. Hmm. I mean, he said he's going to double the economic growth of the United States. Well, I'd like to see that. I mean, yeah. I don't know how does how does he do that? Double the growth, and uh, you know, I don't see, you know. But I, many of the supporters, as you said er, uh, earlier, that just kind of goes right over the head, anyway, right? Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, things that he said. But the thing is, doubling the growth would mean creating jobs for people who don't have good jobs right now. And I don't know whether they're going to feel two years, four years from now, that their economic situation's any better. Yeah, good point. It, yeah, it, it's actually their their life, and if they 
you know, if they're still flipping hamburgers four years from now, are they going to be as happy with them? Henry Jasek has been with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. Henry, always fun. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. It's going to be interesting times ahead. I know. We'll talk again, I'm sure. Very good, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We got a lot of uh, uh, kudos for our seem to be ongoing segments on the Canada Revenue Agency tax scam thing uh, where people were getting called from officials they thought were from uh, the CRA. And of course, uh, it was just an extortion ring trying to get money out of people. We beat this thing with a de- like a dead horse for like a week uh, because we couldn't believe that these numbers were still active. It started with me getting a phone message. And, you know, then we just called them back for fun. We should have kept the number. It's probably still valid. We'll probably still talk to the same guy. What was his name? Russell? Kurt? Something like that. Goldie Ryan Hunt. Smith? Brian, it was Ryan Smith. How do yeah. you remember that? You're right. It was Ryan Smith. Uh, anyway, you know, we, we'd called the number like weeks later and some man who didn't sound like Ryan Smith would answer and, uh, and off we'd go. And it, it was bizarre. We had the guy on for 20 minutes trying to... Uh, to take us for for cash and then it was the uh the car wrap thing there was a car wrap one that that also uh seemed to be getting a lot of attention and now there's a new one and this is the mystery shopper so uh you know i've been doing this for 10 years i think i've had uh daniel williams senior fraud specialist at the canadian anti-fraud center on more in the last few months that we've had on in the 10 years i've been doing this and daniel is with us now hello daniel how you doing today just fine, Scott. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. What is the scam right now that you are getting the most traction with? What what, what are you getting the most complaints for? Because obviously there's a few of these going at once. Well, if, if you're looking at um, uh, raw numbers, it would be uh, anything to do with uh, phishing, uh, usually by you know the phishing emails, sometimes the phishing um, uh, text messages. Uh, you know, fraud, unfortunately, is, is always with us. There's an awful lot of mass marketing fraud going on. Um, you know, criminals make full use of the Internet. They, they, they email, they text, they uh, robocall Canadians, you know, by the thousands and thousands each day. It's, um, you know, a, a constant battle to... Uh, you know, keep the the public uh, informed and aware of what's going on. You know, to be able to cut down the victimization rates a bit, because you know, the, the more information on it, uh, the, the less victimized we're going to be. Um, the last yeah. time, the last time we chatted with you, it was about the tax, uh, the Canada Revenue Agency tax scam. Is that still going on, or has that one died down a bit? Considerably since the. Uh, the arrests in Mumbai, India, um, some call centers uh, apparently involved in uh, phoning, you know, the U.S. as well as Canada and possibly Australia and elsewhere. Uh, there were some you know, pretty intensive um, investigations and arrests done, and the calls that we've been taken have dropped dramatically. They're still coming in in dribs and drabs, which, mm-hmm. which makes sense because, you know, anything that makes money, you're not going to have just one gang having the wherewithal to do it. Right. You know, even if, you know, with the bigger gangs, they're going to have multiple areas that they're working out of. They don't put all their eggs in one basket. Uh, you know, they never want the flow of money to, to dry up completely. So uh, if, it, if it's a, 
it's a, a good scam, if it's a reasonable scam, if it makes sense, if it's going to make money, it's going to be with us. Um, the arrests that were made in India, talk a little bit more about those. Uh, was your agency in any way involved in those? And by that, I mean supplying information. Uh, where where did they get the complaints to, you know, make those arrests that they that they have? Um, and like I said, was it information through other countries such as yourself? Um, I, I have to confess, I haven't got any feedback on any direct connection. I know, you know, our analytical unit has been helping to feed this information as we get it to you know, any and every law enforcement and government agency that will listen. So, you know, we, we certainly hope that our information, uh, you, know, you know, may have helped. So uh, have you noticed a drop in other scams as a result of these arrests, or were these just strictly tied to the, the Canada Revenue Agency scam? Uh, it, it appears that this was just with the, the, the phone fraud, the, you know, the phone call extortion. Yeah. Uh, we're still getting the the Canada Revenue Agency email scam, which is a, a phishing type where they, in, instead of threatening you with um, jail and whatnot, they're promising you a refund. You have to click on a link, enter all of your information uh, up to and including your credit card or debit card information. And if you've provided all of that, uh, you know, depending how many thousands of people respond on any batch of these emails they may hit you that day it may take two days it, you know in some t- cases it takes weeks before they have the time to go into your account so many people are responding to these things hmm. so tell us about the mystery shopper scam how does this work well it's um you know the if we're looking specifically at the text message which really is just a variation of any means that scammers can use to to reach a lot of people cheaply and easily mm-hmm it's a, a text message offering you uh, employment. It, sometimes they, they go into a little bit of detail in the initial text. Sometimes it's just, um, you know, part-time work available if interested. And usually it's a, an email address that you'll respond to. Some of them will give you a phone number. You respond to it. Uh, no matter what your situation is, you're hired as a secret shopper. The first order of business is they get your, your mailing address. Your, your, your legal name, they mail you off a check right away, usually for about anywhere from 2900 to about $4,500. Uh, you receive the check you know, very quickly thereafter. It's um, drawn on a, a Canadian bank. It's issued by a Canadian business. Uh, everything looks in order. It's good quality paper. Everything matches up the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take it into your bank. Um, a couple of days later, you get access to all or most of the funds. The instructions that you're given, uh, there are a few, um, you know, little blinds just to flesh out the story. You know, spend $100 at a fast food restaurant and two uh, department stores, do this, do that. But then the main part, what they're really wanting you to do is you have to evaluate uh, a financial institution or a money-sending uh, company. Uh, in to do that, you send off 1500 by, let's say, Western Union to a name in the U.K., in India, in China, in Toronto, you know, wherever. And, um, of course, they give you nice evaluation forms that you're supposed to fill out, the, all of the service that you're given. Sometimes they even will ask, you know, what fraud, inf- what fraud protection information were you given? So they really flesh out the story to make it seem like, you know, you're... Um, 
giving them information that they're happy to pay for, when indeed all you're doing is turning their counterfeit check temporarily into real money and then sending it back to them in a very safe means. Hmm. So how do you get access to the money within two or three days? I'm presuming that's to let the check clear, um, and it's not cleared. No, see, that, that's the mistake that you know, way too many consumers make you know, the, the first time around because people are hardly taken twice. Yeah. The, a check is an agreement between you and the person who issued the check. It has nothing to do with your bank. When your bank gives you access to the funds, all your bank is telling you is, you know, we, you've never cheated us, you've never given us a bad right. check, you've so never we given tr- us a counterfeit check. So we trust this we one. We trust you, exactly. Yeah. Every check you've ever brought in was a, was a business check, or yep. a check from your insurance company. You know, we're going to make sure it's not stale dated. We'll make sure it's made payable to you. Mm-hmm. We'll make sure it's coming from a Canadian bank. Thank you very much. Here's the money. So the the counterfeit check uh, translates to real money into your account, and then the mystery shopper then sends that money back to these addresses, thinking it's the money that they were sent. And of course, uh, in the end, the bank comes asking for their money back. Exactly. Which, yeah. And as I say, you know, it's a scam that uh, on ninety nine point nine percent of uh, people who are victimized in this manner will only be victimized once, but. With over seven billion of us on this planet, mm. uh, you know, it, it, even hitting a, a small percentage of us once is billions of dollars worldwide for these scammers, and and that's what we're looking at. You know, every scam that we have ever faced, mass marketing scam that we have ever faced in Canada, the good people in the U.S. are getting it. Australia, the U.K., uh, India, uh, Germany. You know, it's 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 global. It's worldwide. It's it's very very big business. So what is the reason, again, in the mystery shopping uh, situation, what is the reason given for the victim to send the money back to whatever address? They're told that they're evaluating, uh, for example, Western Union. Right. So, I mean, in order, you know, you get your check for... Oh, so they're actually evaluating a financial institution. Exactly. exactly. But it's our money. It's our money that you're transferring, so don't worry about it. Perfect. And, I mean, on the check that you get, the 4500 First order of business is deduct your four hundred dollars. Yeah, pay. and then the rest is spending money for the for the experiment. Exactly. And, for, and sometimes yeah. they, you know, we see you know different mo's, different gangs. Some of them make it very very simple. There's only money for your pay, and then the money that you're sending by MoneyGram, Western Union, uh, even a, an e-transfer, uh, a bank wire, because you know intertwined in all of this is um, you know the the sad world of money mules where the, the really sophisticated scammers, and unfortunately there are a lot of gangs who are like this, they will get one victim to send money to another victim, to another victim, to another victim, before it finally gets back to the gang. It really muddies the trail for law enforcement. It makes it, um, you know, very difficult to, you know, to, to, to really follow the, the money. It makes the scammers so safe in what they're doing you know they they can defraud somebody in Arkansas uh, thinking that they're buying a, a boat from somebody in Ohio they send them that money the person in Ohio thinks that they're sending money to uh, their their true love that they met online in Calgary Alberta from there that money is sent to Toronto and then finally goes to could be the UK, could be Lagos, Nigeria, could be anywhere. But it's um, so there, there's 
twists and turns and... So really, this mystery shopper scam isn't much different from the car wrap scam. It's just a different product, a different exactly. a different exactly. scenario. But it, it involves getting money to do something and then in turn sending the money back. And of course, I mean, you know, all scams, what they involve is uh, somebody with a good story wants to get a hold of your money, either, you know, directly from you or you processing a counterfeit check or them using your good name to obtain goods and services. So, you know, it's... Um, uh, you know, clever people with a good story wanting to get a hold of your money, leaving you high and dry. It's amazing how uh, when one comes in, like whether it's a CRA scam, it just seems to it seems to be like just a wave that comes in, and and you hear lots of reports of it. And then all of a sudden it stops because obviously something's been triggered or what have you. And then it doesn't take long for the next one to come in line. Exactly that. You know, I've been at the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre for 17 years now, and what, you know, what I see of the world of fraud is constant waves and cycles. Um, you know, there's once in a while you'll see something brand new based, you know, possibly on, you know, new technology coming in, but really and truly it's, it's always a, a variation on the theme, and overall what has always worked the, the best in Cutting down victimization is information and education. The more media coverage, the more shows like this, the less victims that we're going to have to deal with. The, the more and more people who, who call in and say, you know, I was on my way to the post office, $3,500 in hand to send off money by MoneyGram for whatever reason. Hmm. I heard a story so close to what I was involved in. Here I am. I've saved that money. So, uh, you know, the... The information that we provide to law enforcement, you know, that does have an effect. You know, that, uh, you know, some of these criminals do end up behind bars. But sadly, you know, the, the number of them lining up to take a chance at your money, it seems to be almost infinite. So it's more a matter of educate people so they're protected against all the, the different gangs doing pretty much the same thing. Uh, so what are some basic tips, Daniel, people can have to and be mindful of just not to get trapped in whatever the next one is? Verify, verify, verify. You know, a stranger contacts you. Uh, they have a wonderful story. You know, they're, they're with the government. They're with some authority. They're with your bank. They're with whoever. Take the time to verify who you're dealing with. You'll beat the mass marketing fraud type every single time because they're, what they're doing to you they're doing to 100,000 people, most probably that week, whether, you know, if you combine everybody in Canada, the U.S., Australia, India, who's being hit with the same type of scam, you know, the, the numbers are huge, which means the information is on the Internet. You do a Google search of, you know, what you're being presented with, you're going you're gonna to find so many stories, so much information on exactly what you're going through. It, it should be enough to prove the case for you. You know, within seconds, really and truly. You know, the uh, on, on a counterfeit check, you know, you contact the, the company that issued the check, bang, right away they will inform you that, no, we owe you no money, we, we did no business with you, we did not send you a check, and yes, you're the 15th person who's hmm. called in about this. So, Web, website we can go to, Daniel, to find out more about all this stuff? Uh, in, including the Canadian Anti-Fraud Center, the RCMP, uh, Better Business Bureau, there, there, you know, all There's sorts of sites that have good information on this. And, uh, and, and of course, I root for the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. It's um, 
uh, our site has some really, really good info. Daniel Williams has been with us, Senior Fraud Specialist, Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre. Uh, of course, the CRA scam, car wrap, and now the mystery shopper. Uh, Daniel warning you to, uh, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Daniel, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.